It's good to be worshiping with you all. It's a, a privilege to be able to open up God's word together this afternoon. Do you ever come across a fact or maybe you hear a story that just seems a little bit too strange to be true? Like it's just a little bit unbelievable. I came across a few of these this week and I'm gonna share a couple of them with you. So most of you probably know that the, the, the nation of Israel became a formally recognized nation again in 19, it's either 46 or 47. I knew that. What I didn't know is that when they became a, a recognized nation again, they asked Albert Einstein to accept Israeli citizenship and to be their president. If you would have told me that last week, I would have argued emphatically that you were crazy, that there's no way that that was true because, I, I, and I don't know why I didn't dig too much into it. I don't know why they would have asked Albert Einstein to, I, Albert Einstein to be their president, but they did. Did you know that Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, and Joseph Stalin, some of the most wicked and murderous tyrants this world has ever known, were at one point nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize? Again, crazy, but it's still true. You can Google it and look it up. Just because something sounds strange, unbelievable, unfamiliar, doesn't necessarily mean that it is not true. Daniel chapter 10 is one of the strangest passages in the Bible. It's strange because it provides us with a glimpse into the activity of angels and demons. And it can be a tricky, a tricky passage, but it was placed in God's word. And so we need to do the work to study it, to wrestle with it, and be shaped and transformed by it. So this text is going to expand on a topic that, that isn't often directly addressed in Scripture, outside of just a handful of passages. There is more than the physical world around us, though. More than just what we see with our eyes. There is an unseen spiritual world. And though it may seem strange or unfamiliar, it is still a reality. Daniel chapter 10 is a little bit like taking the red pill from the matrix because it kind of shows you what the world is really like, what we can't see and what's hiding behind the curtain. And it allows us to peek behind that curtain and to see that there is this great spiritual battle, this great conflict that is raging around us. And it teaches us what our role in this conflict is and how effective our faithful prayer can be. God's people are not bystanders in this conflict. We have a role to play in this conflict and we're gonna see what that role is this afternoon. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. We're gonna read the first nine verses together. <clears throat> in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man, clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, 
his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So this is the final recorded vision of Daniel. And it came to him in the third year of Cyrus's reign. So the exile at this point has been over for two or three years. The rebuilding of Jerusalem is already underway again at this point. But this vision that Daniel gets, it depicts this great conflict, a war on a massive scale. And we're going to get to the human side of that conflict, the the main content of the vision, in chapter 11 next week. And we're going to see some of the details of this from the, the human battles from the time of Persia all the way to the time of the Antichrist, which is still future to us. But here in chapter 10, we glimpse a different side of this conflict. Daniel, as I said, is able to peek behind the curtain, to see things as they truly are. And and what Daniel saw and what we see in this text is that there is a cosmic conflict taking place between God's servants and God and his enemies. So chapters 10 to 12, they show us where these spiritual and physical battles collide. But before we see that in full, we find Daniel engrossed in an intense period of mourning, prayer, and fasting. Daniel was in this state of mourning for three weeks, it says. And this is not like last week in Daniel 9 where where weeks were periods of years. These are literal weeks, uh, and, and the Hebrew reflects that. Daniel says it was three weeks of days. So this is three weeks, 21 days of mourning, prayer, and fasting. As to why Daniel's mourning in the first place, it's not stated explicitly, but most likely it's the sorry state of Israel at that point in history. Uh, We know that early in the book of Ezra, the king of Persia commanded them to halt their rebuilding and their restoration of Jerusalem. It it could have been that command specifically uh, that sparked Daniel's mourning here. But whatever that reason may have been, Daniel is, is mourning. He's seeking to understand the difficult situation and station that Israel is currently in. Verse 12 tells us that. Oh, we'll get there in a few minutes, but it says that he was seeking to understand. He was seeking to humble himself before the Lord. And if you remember back in chapter nine, we saw that even as Daniel was praying for the restoration of Israel, what he was ultimately praying for was God's glory to be established. And I think we can safely assume that that's the case here. Daniel wants to understand how and when God's glory will be demonstrated through the restoration of his people back to their former glory, back to what they once were. This morning, though, it's not a pity party for Daniel, right? He's not just, woe is me, woe is us, things are so bad, why is it like this? His morning stirs him to greater focus in prayer. It, It drove him even to fast from some of the luxuries and the nice things that that you and I might use to distract ourselves from frustration and hardship. He didn't eat the choice food. He didn't didn't drink wine. 
He didn't pull out his essential oils and anoint himself with oil. He was fasting from all of those niceties and those luxuries. And he did so in order to focus entirely on seeking God's face in prayer. Now, I think it would be wrong for me to stand up here and say, all of you have to fast or you're in sin. The Bible doesn't command fasting, but I do think it's appropriate to say that at least occasionally, I think we should fast. It is for our benefit to fast. It's voluntary, but there's great benefit. And to say that, you know, more than I need food, I need to seek God's face. More than I need nourishment for my body, I need to feast on the word of God. I need to focus on him entirely. And, and, and here, I don't even think we're seeing a total fast either from Daniel. He's not totally fasting from food. He fasted from the delicacies, from the wine, from the oils. He, he's fasting from specific foods and luxuries. Many of us struggle to pray for more than a few minutes because we're simply too distracted. And, and I think we would find great benefit in cutting some of those out, fasting from some of those distractions. They may not be a bad thing in itself, but it pulls our minds and our thoughts away from the Lord. I think we would greatly benefit from fasting from, from social media or TV or, or maybe food for you, music. I don't know what it is, but those things that distract us and pull our attention away from the Lord and away from the work that he has for us. I mean, instead of, of spending an hour a day scrolling on Instagram if you devoted that time to the Lord in prayer. Instead of watching TV before bed every night, use that time to seek God's face. But whichever way we choose to fast, we must do so with a proper motive. Because fasting is not simply a means of twisting God's arm so that he'll give us the things that we want. It's not a manipulation tactic. We fast to eliminate distractions in order to sharpen our focus on God so that we can seek him in prayer unhindered by everything else that's going, around, going on around us in our life. And again, it is, it is voluntary. Nobody has to fast, but David and Moses, Daniel, Esther, Paul, the elders of the early church, they all fasted and found great benefit from it. So I think we would be wise to consider whether there is benefit for us in fasting as well. When we come to verse four, we see that Daniel has removed himself away from his normal responsibilities in the Persian court, and he is on the Tigris River. So he's away from the main city, and he looks up, and he sees this terrifying and glorious image of a man. A man dressed in linen with a golden sash around his waist. His face is like barrel or or topaz, like a, a precious yellow stone. His face is like lightning, his eyes are like flaming torches, his legs like burnished bronze, and when he speaks, it's like thousands of people speaking at once. Who is this terrifying and glorious being? Some would argue that this is an angelic being, that this is, maybe it's, maybe it's the angel Michael or Gabriel or, or some other high-ranking angel. I would say that's probably the majority view um, I'm certainly in the minority. I'm not alone in my interpretation, but it is the minority view. I think that the evidence leans strongly in favor of this man being a vision of Jesus Christ himself. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is because of what we see outside the book of Daniel. I want to read a passage from the book of Revelation where John, Jesus' disciple, 
describes Jesus as he sees him. And so we're gonna have this passage up there. You can follow along with me or you can just listen. But I want you to note the similarity and the parallels here between Revelation 1 and John, or Revelation 1 and Daniel 10. So Revelation 1, verses 13 through 16. And in the midst of one of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So there's a little bit of difference there, but, but hopefully you can see the overlap. Those are incredibly similar descriptions. Both have, have the white linen or, or the robe emphasizing his purity. They both have the, the golden belt or the sash, eyes of fire, the, the gleaming body of, of beryl or burnished bronze, the, the strong, powerful voice. Uh, the face shines like the sun or like lightning. There, there's an incredible amount of overlap here. And it's very hard for me to think that John would read the description in Daniel, in Daniel 10 and think it's anyone other than Jesus based on the description of Jesus he gives us in Revelation. But there's another detail there in Revelation that I think uh, sways in this favor as well. The title that John uses here is the Son of Man. Jesus used this title of himself, but that, that title is rooted in the book of Daniel. If you guys can think back, it's over a month now because we took a break from Daniel at the end of the year. Uh, but if you can think back to Daniel 7, we saw that one day, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, would give all dominion and authority and power to the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man who would come and destroy the Antichrist and his kingdom, deliver his people, and establish a perfect, eternal kingdom where all of his people would, would worship and follow after him. The Son of Man is Jesus. And I think in using this description and this title of Jesus, I think John confirms that what Daniel saw here in chapter 10 is, in fact, an image of Jesus. And there is other evidence for this that I'm not gonna dig into today, but I think that the evidence we find in this text and from elsewhere in scripture points to the fact that this was a vision of Jesus, a glorious vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah. But while it is glorious, we must not miss that it is equally terrifying. Notice uh, how, how similar verses seven to nine that we just read, how similar they are to the conversion of Saul in Acts 9. Saul was traveling to Damascus for the purpose of persecuting the followers of Jesus when he heard the voice of Jesus. And when this happened, Paul fell to the ground. His companions couldn't see anything, but they were speechless and afraid because they could hear the voice. Now the text here, Daniel 10, doesn't say that uh, explicitly uh, Daniel's companions heard the voice. My assumption is that they did. They could not see the vision. They could not see what Daniel saw. Uh, but they could hear the voice of a multitude, this powerful voice from the Son of Man. And terrified, they fled. But Daniel, like Saul did, fell to his face. And Daniel was so overwhelmed by the power of this voice and presence, he goes white as a ghost, and it tells us twice that his strength was sapped from him upon seeing Jesus. It was so intense and overwhelming that he passes out. Now, I've often heard from, from non-Christians 
And unfortunately, some who call themselves Christians and even pastors, you know, that they love the God of the New Testament and they dislike the God of the Old Testament. And they talk about them as if they're two different gods. You've got the Old Testament over here. He's scary, he's mean, he's judgmental, wrathful. And then you have Jesus, and he's gentle, and he's loving. And most of you have probably heard this as well. But the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are not different. They are one in the same. And our God is unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The God that predates creation, created all things and oversees all things, he will be exactly the same five billion years from now. So yes, Jesus is the good shepherd. He loves his people deeply. He is gentle and lowly and merciful and compassionate. He embraces the most vile of sinners so long as they repent. But we must remember that Jesus is also the sovereign king of everything. It is Jesus who has the authority and the right to judge those who rebel against him. And he will do so with perfect righteousness and judgment. He will return to judge and utterly crush his enemies. To help contextualize this a little bit, uh, and it's funny, my dad is actually here today. I didn't know he was gonna be here. But, but growing up, uh, I had a healthy respect and fear of my father. He was kind and patient and gentle. I never on any occasion felt that he didn't love me. But there was still a healthy fear that if I was disrespectful, if I was disobedient, there would be consequences. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> like when you got in trouble and you were getting a spanking, man, you hoped mom was spanking you. Sorry, mom, I know you're here too. Uh, that was the hope, you know? It just didn't hit the same. When, when dad came home, it was a little bit different. Dad was the big guns. When mom was at the end of a rope, she would utter the words you didn't want to hear. I'm done. Wait till your dad gets home. And that's when the fear kicked in. Then you're like, oh man, what have I done? <laughs> that anticipation of the discipline that was coming when dad got home. But even in discipline, there was a balance there. My dad never spanked us out of anger. He might have, he just didn't show it. But, and, and he never spanked us without reminding us that I don't like doing this. I'm doing this for your own good. It hurts me more than it hurts you. I know, and as a kid, I'm like, okay, big dog, let's switch places then. Let's, let me give a try. <laughs> but, but now that I have my own kids, I understand what he meant. You have to have this balance of firmness and discipline. You need both there. You can have gentleness and love, but it's balanced by firmness and discipline. We must not forget that the same is true with God, with Jesus Christ. He is still God, but there is an aspect of that that should fill us with a healthy fear. But showing Daniel this, this terrifying image of Jesus, I don't believe was intended to scare Daniel, but rather to reassure him of who is really in charge. So number one, the glorious and terrifying son of man has all things under control. The glorious and terrifying Jesus has all things under his control. You see, chapters 10 through 12, they're a single unit, and they need to be read and understood together. Daniel is about to see that this cosmic battle 
And he's gonna see that God and his people are engrossed in this battle. Chapter 10 shows us the spiritual aspect, while 11 and 12 show us this war on the human plane. And seeing what was coming for God's people would be enough to overwhelm and discourage Daniel. But this terrifying and glorious image of the Son of Man would ultimately reassure Daniel because we're on his team. We're not fighting against this Son of Man. Daniel's seen angels, and he's gonna see visions, even more visions of wicked rulers yet to come. But this Son of Man is far more glorious, far more terrifying, far more powerful, but we are on his side. And so as bad as things may look in the coming vision that we're gonna see next week, the Son of Man will be victorious. All things are under his sovereign hand and control. So this terrifying and glorious image of Jesus, it helps us to rightly situate chapters 10 through 12. Because the, 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 this great conflict of details, all of it comes under the hand of the Son of Man. But we need to keep reading because then we can see what our role in this conflict is. So look back to Daniel 10 with me. We're gonna read verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> and behold, a hand touched me and set, my trem- set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is of days yet to come. So Daniel is still devoid of strength here unable to do anything but lie face down until a hand helps him up, sets him trembling on all fours. So he is shaking in his boots over this image that he just witnessed. Now this helping hand, the one that speaks with Daniel, is not the same one of the son of man that he just witnessed. Later in chapter 12, you'll see that the son of man, he's hovering up above over the Tigris River. So it's safe to assume that he's doing that here as well. The one interacting with Daniel here is an angel. It's not explicitly stated, but I think the context tells us this. And my assumption is that this is Gabriel because Gabriel so far has been the one to come and speak with Daniel and give him messages and visions from the Lord. So Gabriel reminds Daniel, Daniel, you are greatly loved. You are treasured by God. But he says, Daniel, you gotta stand up because I have a message for you. And with Gabriel's encouragement, Daniel, still trembling, finds the strength to stand up. And then Gabriel tells Daniel that it is because he set his heart to understand and because he humbled himself that Gabriel has brought this message in the first place. So there's two things worth noting here. Probably more than that, but I'm gonna note two. First, the implication of Gabriel's words are that if Daniel hadn't prayed, Gabriel would not have come to bring this message. So Daniel's prayer is influencing the course of action taken by the angel Gabriel. The second thing worth noting 
is the delay in answering Daniel's prayer. Because something different is going on here compared to chapter nine. In chapter nine, Daniel prayed. And from the moment that he prayed, word was sent and Gabriel came immediately to bring him a word from the Lord. But here, Daniel's been mourning, praying, fasting for three weeks and has not heard anything from God. But now, three weeks later, Gabriel shows up. He's like, oh, hey, don't worry. God heard you three weeks ago, and I'm here now. So what gives? Why why a three-week delay this time? This is where we start to kind of peek behind the curtain. We get a glimpse of, of the things that we don't see with our eyes. Believers affect the outcome of spiritual battles and the activity of angels, But we'll see as well, angels and demons also affect human affairs as well. Gabriel was struggling against the prince of Persia. He struggled against him for 21 days, the same amount of time that Daniel had been praying. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the highest ranking angels that we see in scripture, arrives to help him. Michael arrives, Gabriel is free to proceed in bringing Daniel this message from the Lord. And that message is what we're gonna see next week in Daniel 11. Here, There there are some truths that we find that that might sound a bit strange, but we need to recognize that they are true because they are in God's word. Angels and demons, or fallen angels, they are real, and they can and do affect human affairs. The prince of Persia, the kings of Persia, were contending with Gabriel. Gabriel is an angel, a very powerful angel, much more powerful than you or I. Usually when somebody sees an angel in scripture, they fall on their face or they run away in fear. They are so much more powerful than us, but this prince of Persia is contending against them. That tells us that the prince of Persia here is not a man. This is an angelic being, just like Gabriel. It's a a powerful fallen angel. Since Persia was the world's superpower, it may have been Satan himself in this instance. But whether it's Satan or another fallen angel... What we see is that they hold a measure of authority and association with the kingdom of Persia. Fallen angels have sway and influence with human rulers and the nations that they rule. And this is not only true of wicked nations, for later in the passage, we're gonna see that Michael was the prince over Israel. He was an angel that God had sent to fight on their behalf. In Revelation, you see that even local churches have an angel that is associated with them and oversees their ministries and what they are doing. So it might be difficult for us to wrap our heads around this with too much clarity because the Bible doesn't tell us the specifics of how the spiritual realm of angels and demons intersects with the the physical realm of humanity that we live in. All we really see is that they do influence one another. And that's really what Daniel sees here. To go further than that is is just to go past what the text tells us. And you can get into some crazy stuff there. So we're not gonna go further than that. Chapter 11 is gonna show us the physical battle and the persecution coming for God's people. But here we learn that this battle and persecution is not merely physical. God's people are engaged in a war that extends past the physical and into the spiritual. So number two, God's people are engaged in a cosmic conflict that is both physical and spiritual. Daniel shows us there's this cosmic conflict raging around us that, 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 we can, uh, that affects us, that we can also affect. 
Fallen angels shape and influence wicked leaders to pursue their goal of harming God's people, of opposing his plans, right? So God's people, we face regular opposition and persecution, but this opposition is not merely human all the time. There are times where it may be satanic or demonic powers that are opposing the work in Christ's church. But that reality should not cause us to tremble with fear. And Gabriel does not drop this revelation on Daniel without the promise of hope and help. Read again with me. Let's take a look at the final verses of our passage. It'll be Daniel 10, 15 through 11, 1. <clears throat> when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. <clears throat> Daniel is still, still reeling from his vision of the Son of Man. And upon hearing these words about this great conflict and the prince of Persia, he looks down and he is silent. He still does not have the strength to even speak. And until the angel, Gabriel, imparts strength to him by touching his lips, he still can't speak. When he does speak, though, it's to tell the angel hey, you know what, we can't even have this conversation, right? I, I'm still so overwhelmed and shocked by this vision that I saw, I can't even hear the message that you brought to me. And then in verse 18, Daniel, once again, is strengthened by the angel. We're seeing a pattern here. Daniel continues to receive strength from Gabriel. And we've learned a lot about how angels operate. We see that they're, they're engaged in this spiritual battle. We see that they can influence humans through, through leaders of world powers, but they can also affect individuals like Daniel. I wouldn't say that you should expect this all the time or probably ever. I don't know that I've ever been strengthened by an angel, but they can affect individuals. They can give strength to uh, believers. In, in the first chapter of Hebrews, it tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve believers. The last chapter of Hebrews tells us that, that some of us may have even entertained angels as we've shown hospitality without ever even realizing it. The unseen realm of heavenly and angelic beings is not as far off as we often assume. And so Daniel here receives this strength in order to hear the message. But Gabriel's pressed for time because he has to return to the fight against the prince of Persia. And once that fight is over, he's gonna have to fight against the prince of Greece. So demonic authority and influence in human affairs wasn't restricted only to Persia. It continued with Greece, the next major world power. You can think all the way back to chapter two, very beginning of Daniel. We saw how this progression of earthly kingdoms will continue to rise and fall until Christ returns to establish 
his kingdom. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here as well, that this cycle of world powers is spurred on. It's, it's spurred on by satanic and demonic authority and influence. And this spiritual conflict is going to continue alongside the human conflict we'll read about next week until Christ comes back. But the point of bringing knowledge of this conflict to show Daniel, uh, bringing knowledge of this conflict was to show Daniel what is inscribed in the book of truth. The book of truth is figurative language that, that describes God's plan for Israel and for the rest of the world as well. It's God's history book that has already been written. The angel's going to show Daniel this, this great conflict, and then in the end, he, he pairs this promise of truth with, with another encouragement. And he says that no one fights by my side except for Michael, the prince of Israel. I say that that's an encouragement. I don't think the implication is to say that, hey, we're outnumbered here. We're gonna lose this fight. I think it's to say that nobody else is needed. I think that Gabriel's telling Daniel, hey, you're in good hands. God has sent Michael and me to fight on your behalf. And then the final verse, chapter 11, verse one, should really be included with chapter 10 um, because in my opinion, it's another example of, of Michael and Gabriel's victory over the prince of Persia. And I wanna be clear here too, I, this is my opinion. The Bible doesn't say this explicitly. This is Pastor Garrett connecting some dots and some threads here. Gabriel stood up to confirm and strengthen Michael in the first year of Darius. And remember, we said a while back, Darius and Cyrus are two names for the same person. So the first year of Darius is the year that the exile of the Israelites ended. They were allowed to return home. So it seems to me that there was a spiritual battle surrounding that event that demonic powers sought to prevent God's plan from coming true, his promises from being fulfilled. Because to do that would make God a liar. But I think what Gabriel's saying here is that, hey, we fought on your behalf and we prevailed over them because God's plans do not fail. And so they were able to return back to Jerusalem. So this book of truth, it shows the end of the story. It shows that the final triumph, or it shows that there will be final triumph of God over his enemies. 11 and 12, those are gonna be the bulk of Gabriel's message. And they're gonna show that this great conflict is already won. It's already been decided. That's number three. The outcome of this great conflict has already been decided. So we see this, this strange spiritual war that we are involved in. But it promises us that even though this, this battle carries on, victory is guaranteed. Because we're on the same team as the glorious and terrifying son of man. Satan and his fallen angels, they are powerful, more so than us. But their power is nothing compared to the son of man. At no point can God's enemies do any more than he allows. This spiritual conflict does not imply in any way that God is not powerful enough to quell that rebellion of his enemies. God could snap his fingers and it would be done in an instant. Daniel's clear over and over and over through his book that God is sovereignly in control and moving all things until the coming of Christ and his kingdom is established. The end is written. But in his wisdom, God allows this conflict to persist for a time. Now, it can be jarring to think about this spiritual battle that's going on 
to think about the way that demonic powers can influence our world in such dramatic ways. But it's not this spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in that we should be fearful of. Daniel's fearful, he's trembling, but he's never trembling at spiritual powers. He's trembling at the awe and power of the Son of Man. He is greater. He is more terrifying. He is more powerful and more glorious than any demonic angel, uh, demonic or angelic being. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we look to the Son of Man with hope and with gratitude because we know he is coming and he will finish this conflict once and for all. So, what do we do with a text like this? this I mean, it's a lot of cool information, but what is this, how does this shape us today as believers? There's this battle that's going on that we can't see anyways, and Jesus is gonna win it in the end, so why does it matter? What is our role in this conflict? I would say that our role in this conflict is prayer. That is what we see from Daniel. And so our big idea today is that Christians wage spiritual war through faithful and devoted prayer. Christians wage spiritual war through faithful and devoted prayer. And I wanna be careful and clear with this because some people get crazy when you talk about spiritual warfare and things like that. Daniel was not praying about angels. Daniel was not praying for God to send more angels into battle, into the battlefield. He wasn't saying, hey God, send Michael to punch Satan in the mouth. Like, that's not what Daniel's doing. How was Daniel praying? Look at verse 12. He set his heart to understand God's plans and humbled himself before God. Daniel was mourning over the state of Israel. We saw in chapter nine how he was praying faithfully for the restoration of Israel so that God's name would be glorified. I think it's a safe assumption that he's praying the same way here. This is the heart of his prayer. He's mourning the current state of Israel and asking God to restore them. So Daniel's faithful prayer for God to accomplish his plans is what affected this conflict between the Lord's angels and the prince of Persia, God's enemies. So our job as Christians is not to worry about these unseen battles between good angels and bad angels, but, but knowing the reality of this conflict and the power of God's enemies, it should provoke us to more focused and faithful prayer. I mean, think about it. As Christians, we seek to carry out God's will and God's commands. We long to see his name and his glory established across the earth among every nation. God has given us the task of doing that in the Great Commission. But there is an enemy who is far more powerful than any of us that seeks to oppose that work. And if that's the case, what other recourse do we have but to come to the Lord in prayer? To plead with the Lord to strengthen us to encourage us, to, to embolden us, to actually go and accomplish his will and plan. The way that we contend against these, these opposing powers is through faithful prayer. That is our weapon in this fight. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He tells us to put on the armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil because we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood. He's saying we don't wrestle against physical enemies but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. Every one of those titles refers to satanic and demonic powers. So this is not just a weird Old Testament thing. This is true in the New Testament as well. And after explaining that we need to put on the armor of God, the next thing that Paul does is he says, pray at all times. 
with prayer and supplication, interceding for the saints, praying, praying, and praying, and praying. What we see in Daniel and later in the book of Ephesians is that our role in this spiritual conflict is faithful prayer. God's people are the vehicle through which he carries out so many of his plans. And we have been called to faithfully follow and obey him. He's tasked us with with going to the nations to make disciples across the earth. That is our primary task. But there is an enemy that seeks to devour us, to destroy God's people, to prevent God's promises and plans from coming to fruition. And if they are that much more powerful than us, how foolish is it for us to attempt these tasks apart from dependence on the Lord in prayer? Church, we are not strong enough on our own to contend with this enemy. And that is why prayer must be the foundation of everything we do here as a church. That is our weapon to contend against demonic powers and satanic powers. Daniel longed for the restoration of Israel so that God's name would be glorified. And that desire led him to faithful and fervent prayer. And in turn, that prayer was, a, was affecting a spiritual battle that he had no idea was even taking place at the time. When we started Redemption Bible Church, I guess when you started Redemption Bible Church, because I wasn't here at that time, we said, though, that it was because we love this community and we want to see it transformed by the power of the gospel. And I think all of us would still say that. But does that desire to lead you to pray for it as fervently as Daniel prayed for Israel? If it doesn't, can we really say that's our desire? Church, we must pray because prayer is effective and there is an enemy that wants anything except the gospel to take root in this community. And if we desire the gospel to take root in the community, we have to be a people of prayer. We must cry out to God daily, asking him to to use us to proclaim the gospel and transform lives. Pray for wisdom and courage and boldness, opportunities to share the gospel. Pray diligently, fervently, daily for God to cause our efforts to succeed and for him to lead people into faith and salvation. This kind of prayer that faithfully longs for and asks for and pleads for the the fruition of God's plans, that is how we wage war on the enemies of God. Prayer is our weapon. Faithful and fervent prayer that aligns with God's will and pleads for his plans to be carried out, that kind of prayer is effective and powerful. And if we hope to be faithful in all that God has asked of us, we must be a people of prayer. If we hope to be successful and bear fruit as a church, if we hope to reach this community, then we need to commit ourselves to pray that God would empower us to transform this community. And we're gonna end our time today by praying toward that end. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. For a word that that peels back the curtain and allows us to see things as they are, things that we wouldn't otherwise have seen. But Lord, I pray that we would not get lost in the strangeness of this text, but that we would see that the, the root here is that we must pray as Daniel did. That we must pray fervently and faithfully for your will and for your plans to be accomplished. 
Lord, it is our desire as a church to reach the people of Belleville and the surrounding areas to see their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. God, we ask and we plead with you, embolden us, empower us for that work. Lord, help us to be faithful in that calling and we pray that you would give us success in our efforts. Father, we pray for your name to be honored and magnified in this city. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.